Welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda Palmer, where our mission is providing strength to the weakest among us, from both kids in foster care and their biological families. We also talk about topics that affect all children and families. It is our hope that we can inspire you to become the best bio, step, foster, adoptive, or whatever kind of mom or dad that you can be. Part of our mission is inspiring others to become amazing foster families as well, if that is your calling. If it's not your calling, great. Find a thing that sets your soul on fire and go be awesome at that. Let's make our communities great together. Be sure to go by Jason M. Palmer and check out the blog post and other podcast episodes. You can search Jason and Amanda Palmer on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else you get your podcast. If we don't show up, be sure to send me an email and let me know and I will try to get it on there. We'd love to have you leave us some feedback in the form of a rating and review. It really helps the show gain attention. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. We were recently contacted by Rebecca Britt from Stable Moments. Stable Moments is a mentorship program curriculum utilizing equine-assisted learning and community mentors to achieve life skills for children impacted by early developmental trauma. She found our podcast and wanted to have us on, and so we got together and chatted for a little while. When we were done, we decided that the conversation warranted coming out on both platforms. We're planning on getting together with Rebecca and having this conver- having a conversation with her about everything that she does. It's always great to see people who are finding their own way to help youth in our world. They use equine-assisted therapy, which means using horses as a way to connect with kids at risk. I've known several people in the industry who have talked about the benefit that comes from that. So we're going to talk with her in a couple weeks, and this was us telling her our story today. I hope you guys enjoy it. Well, I'm so glad that there are all of these platforms where for pretty cheap, people like you and people like me can talk to the rest of the world and and find our tribe and really be a resource. Like we're just people. And that's really what people want to hear from is just like authentic people like them. Um, So I love it. Let's jump in. Tell me about your story, how you two met, um, where you're from, and what got you into foster and adoption. Well, we're both from right here in East Central Missouri, and um, we're uh, we we met probably 30 miles from St. Louis. We live 20 mile within 20 miles of where we met. We've been in this area our whole life. Um, we met because of coffee and chocolate pie. Yep, lots of chocolate pie. <laughs> the best reason. <laughs> and did you say you're in Florida? Yeah, I'm in Florida. Does yeah. Florida have Waffle Houses down there? Yes. Okay, well, if you want chocolate pie and a cup of coffee at midnight, that's the only place you can go to get it. Yeah. And that's how I met Amanda. She was working at a at a Waffle House. On overnights. On overnights, yep. <laughs> Which can be a very interesting place. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, because that's where all the drunks go. But it was, you know, it's just a place I, I was working at the time as a tow truck driver. And I was working an evening shift. And I spent a lot of times out of the bed in the in the middle of the night. And so I'd stop and stop in there for a cup of coffee and, and a piece of chocolate pie. And that's how I met Amanda. And it all kind of just spiraled upwards from there. We, um, we've um we been together now 20-ish years. Yeah. Um, we Almost didn't actually. 21 years. Yeah. Wow. We, close. We didn't actually get married until 2006, but 
but yeah, we've been together for a lot of years. We've had a lot of kids. Um, we actually, we had two kids between us and then Amanda's oldest sister when I'm sorry, Amanda's youngest sister was a year and a half older than our oldest son and their mother that they share was going through some addiction issues. And so Arissa, her sister came to live in our house and lived with us for years and years and years. And she called me dad. She called Amanda mom. So she's one of ours. And we really thought we were going to be done after that. Yeah. I mean, three kids. We were pretty young, early 20s. You know, we and when you say good. two kids between you, was that kids from prior relationships or you, you guys had two bio kids? So together? one child was from a previous relationship and then we share a son together. Okay. Um, and then your sister. Yes. And then there's my sister. Um, okay. But she was never a sister. She was just daughter. Um, Your daughter, yeah. Um, but at Arissa, what age did she come to you? Um, Arissa was really young, year and a half, two years old. Okay. So baby. Um, so at that point, we had three kids, and we thought, huh, we're managing this. We should probably just manage this. We're young, trying to find our place in the world, not making a whole lot of money. <laughs> you know, when you're young. Sure. Um, but I was a stay-at-home mom, and Jason was driving a truck, and uh, we were living out in St. Peter's, had a little bitty, little bitty home, but it was our home, and uh, we were doing good to manage all that. And then we ended up moving out here to where we're at now. Well, we live in a different house now, but we're out kind of in the country a little ways. And um, when we came out here, I was actually writing a newspaper article, uh, an opinion piece for the local paper. And it was around Christmas time, and I was looking for places for people to donate to some sort of charity, some sort of charitable group that would help people in the area immediately. You know, Red Cross is fine. I'm not mad at them, but if I give money to the Red Cross, you know, three weeks before Christmas, it's probably not going to help any of my neighbors. Sure. So that's what I was looking for. And I went down to our local children's division and was talking to them, and I walked away with a bunch of brochures and came home and talked with Amanda. And we had discussed adoption in the past. And as we looked at, at the idea of foster care, we just both went, hmm, this looks like something we should look into. And in almost no time, there was a class opening up because we have to have the STARS training, which is a class we take for that. And we took the training. And as soon as we got our licensure done, the uh, work, the licensing worker came by our house with a little certificate. And before she left, she said, and by the way, I'd like to talk to you about a couple kids. <laughs> and yeah, and it was, what, two weeks later? It wasn't even two a weeks week. later. It was a week or um, so after that. For, um, our daughters, for, she's our daughter now. We ended up adopting these two children. Uh, but the day after her birthday, they came into care. The yeah. family wanted to keep the children until after our daughter's birthday. They had a, a um, birthday, you know, birthday p party planned out for her, which they kind of used as like a bit of a like a going away sort of thing, I guess. Okay. But um, the family either was not willing or able or um, or deemed inappropriate depending on which member you're talking about, but they were they, they were not able to keep the kids in their home. They, they couldn't follow the rules that they had to follow, I guess. And so they ended up coming to our house, and the first two kids we ever fostered ended up being um, being adopted as well. Yeah, and we, we adopted both of them. Um, we have since come to adopt two more. So we, uh, we own seven children total. Yeah, seven kids we call our own. How about that? <laughs> they range from age four all the way up to... Arissa would have been 23. Yep, she would have been 23 this year. Um, so, um, yeah, it's been a crazy ride. It's probably, what, 
almost 20 kids all in all who've come through our house over the years. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Now you, you said that um, you went down to department of children and families or, or whatever you have there. And that kind of spurred this, but I was listening in your podcast, you said something about hearing um, a, a statistic or a quote about churches. Can you talk about little, that a little bit? And did that um, happen before or after you went down to department of children and families? I think it was right in the same time. I think I actually heard it before that. That's probably what sparked my idea to go to, to the to the children's division and talk to them. Was just thinking about that particular group of people. But yeah, the Doctor Dobson, if you're familiar with him, he has a uh, a Christian based radio show, and I I was listening to him. I drive a truck for a living. I listen to a thousand things all day long, sure. and he had talked about how that the foster crisis and the the well, I guess not even just foster, but the orphan crisis. We would we should probably call it. And the U.S. is such a huge thing. And at the moment, I think there's close to a half a million kids who need a home. And his statistic was something along the line. If one family out of every third church was to adopt one kid out of foster care, you would empty the system tomorrow. Which just blew my mind. Really blew my I was like, you know, and I, I came from a church that was was not really a healthy place for me to be. And, um, <clears throat> and I... I remember I was thinking because I was still pretty angry with that group of people in my head. And I was hearing him say that and I was thinking, man, that's, look at all you righteous people out there going to church and thinking you're somebody and you're doing all this good. And you know, I've read that Bible. I've read it a number of times and it says to take care of the orphans and widows a number of times in there. And you're not doing one of the basic charges. You want to tell me how, how good you are, but you're not doing this. And as I'm sitting here going through this rant in my head, I heard a, a voice, you know, not an audible voice per se, but just that thought comes to mind. Well, what are you doing, bud? Mm. What are you doing? You know, you're not doing anything either. And that's probably what really sparked my thought process to go over to Children's Division and talk to them just to see if, if there was a way we could, could push some help in their general direction. Little did I know it would kind of be the catalyst that would send us through <laughs> a couple dozen kids. Well, and yeah. we had thought about adoption before. Yeah. We, we had never really gotten very far with it. Um, but after I had our second child, I was not able to have any more children. Um, and we had always discussed, I always wanted a big family. I wanted lots of kids running around. Um, and so after, after our second child, I was not able to have any more. So we did, you know, kind of joke around and talk. And, you know, we had talked about possibly maybe um, international adoption, adopting a little girl from China, um, but the cost was was not something we could afford at that time. You know, mm -hmm. young families starting out with three kids, you know, one income, it was just not something that was in the books for us. So we just wrote it off for years as, you know, this is something that's not obtainable. Um, and when he started talking about it and he brought home this package of papers, it was like it was something that was real and it was tangible. And not only that, it was something that we could do right now to help our area. Mm -hmm. um, I did not have the greatest childhood. I should have been in foster care, but nobody stepped up in that way for me. Yeah. So I had always decided that I was going to do something to help children. And Jason knew that going into it when we first met, you know, I just told him this is this is who I am. You know, this is who I am. And you're, if you're going to be with me, you're just going to have to kind of deal with that. And when he brought that package of papers home, it was just like, this is it. it was, mm -hmm. You know, something just clicked and it was like, we can do this. 
We can help kids. We can help kids in our area. And if it's meant to be, this is how we'll grow our family. And like Jason said, our, our very first placement of brother and sister, they ended up staying forever. <laughs> and they're it's still awesome. here today. Um, Janiah is currently 12 and Deshaun is 14. And in full-blown teenage mode. Yeah, gotta love teenagers. <laughs> you know, that's something that always scared me a bit was teenagers, you know, especially teen girls. Is, you know, they're supposed to be such a challenge. I'll be honest with you. Um, she's kind of the easiest. She, yeah, so far. teen girl. So far, she hasn't been been that difficult. But she's only twelve too, so there's still quite a few years. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. But you know, the um, one of the things I learned from from a guy I know, he challenged me one day when I said something about you know the having teens and being such a challenging and difficult thing, and, and he said, really, you know, you can look at it that way, or you can look at it as a bit of an adventure, and you know, how can you do this better? And I thought, huh. I don't have to think about that. And and the more I thought about it, the more I realized that I remember being in middle school, right? I remember being in high school. Those weren't easy years for me. Those weren't great years. And they're struggling through so hard, mm-hmm. just like I was. And just as much as they're trying to figure out how to be a, a grown-up, you know, from a kid's perspective, I'm still trying to learn how to be a dad of teenagers. Even though I've had plenty of them come through my house already, mm-hmm. I should have some some knowledge here. It's taken quite a few to get to the point where I feel like I have any any real knowledge and ability to reach out and help these kids. Yeah. Uh, it's so cool. It's so cool that um, this seems like it was kind of written in your in your DNA, you know, from the beginning and that um, you two met each other and that this kind of just naturally unraveled is really beautiful. And it's crazy. I mean, it's awesome that the first two kids, like without any expectation, really, the first two kids that came in were able to be adopted. And it sounds like you guys were just like, we're opening our home, like whatever this ends up being, you know, we will be for these kids what they need. Um, But it ended up being, you know, your family, Um, which is which is amazing because so many people come in. really with a lot of expectations and they are disappointed um, just because they don't know, you know, different um, situations with kids being re, um, reunified or going back with birth parents or the process to adoption. So um, when you got those first two kids, well, first of all, so, so you say you go to this, um, which it's called the different thing in every state, but you go to this training um, to become foster parents and literally while you're leaving the first the first time they're telling you about these kids? No, no, this this was at the as soon as we finished it because it's uh oh, okay yeah, we, had, we had finished our classes. Um, it's like an eight or nine prior. week prior, or yeah. eight or nine week course uh-huh. that you go through. The week okay. prior to actually finishing our classes, one of the caseworkers said, "Hey, you know, we know of a couple of kids. They might need a place. You know, they gave us a little bit of information and said, why don't you think about it.'" Um, and then they came by and they give you a certificate when you finish your classes to say you're licensed. And as they were giving us the certificate, they said, hey, those two kids that we told you about, they definitely need a home. You know, what do you guys think? And we said, well, you know, this is this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. So, yeah, you know, and we went and picked them up and 
the rest is history. It's just it's <laughs> we picked them up and we took them over away. to McDonald's and I watched her chase a little two year old girl around McDonald's because she was just a wild child and did not want to sit down and it was hilarious. Oh, I was <laughs> terrified. And here I I've had kids. I already had three kids. I've sure. done the toddler thing and this little girl, she was just running all through McDonald's and the only thing I could think of in that moment is is what am I gonna do if she gets out this door? You know, she doesn't know. She doesn't have to listen to me. She doesn't know me. She's known me less than an hour. And I'm asking her to sit down and she's, she ain't sitting down. I was sitting by the door. She <laughs> wasn't going to get out, but it was hilarious. He's laughing at me, you know, he's <laughs> laughing and I'm, I'm chasing a toddler through McDonald's, but I think I, I do that quite regularly nowadays, chase toddlers <laughs> through McDonald's. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it, it's been such a wonderful, wonderful process. You know, now, were those children's um, parental rights already terminated by the time that you no. got them? No, no, they okay. were they were both um, in care. Their their father was actually uh, father was, was deceased, deceased, and mom was um, mom was in custody. Mom was time. incarcerated yeah. at that point. Yeah, she had some charges she was doing time for. Uh, but the goal at that point was still reunification. Okay, they had been staying with um, a grandparent, and the goal was reunification. You know, and that's that's how we looked at it is, you know, this is reunification. That I mean, that's what Children's Division is for. They, you know, they push right. for reunification always. And that's that's where they were pushing was reunification. You know, it just it just wasn't in the cards, you yeah. know, and that being said, we. Yeah, mom was just never able to get herself together. She had it. She had an addiction issue, from what I understand. And you know, I, I don't know what what the issues and where you're from from are, but I assume they're pretty similar across the country. Meth and heroin are the two big ones that I yeah, just see steal people's crisis. souls. And if I'm not mistaken, she was a heroin. Yes. Was she meth? Yeah, I lose track over time. But, but you know, it's, it's so a lot of these people I see, and and this is a challenge, right? You you see these stories, you hear some of these stories. You know, if you listen to our story about Turtle. Um, little guy who who's ours now, right? And but when they did the the hair follicle test on him when he came into care, the things he came up positive for, you know, he was positive for weed, coke, heroin, meth, and oxys. By the way, he was one when they did that test, you know. And it's like that that makes you want to like do bad things to people, right? Who does this to a one year old? You're a horrible human. It's really easy to go down that line of of just being angry and. And feel like you're justified in, in that side of it. But the truth is, is that as many mistakes as, as other people have made, we've made our own fair share of mistakes. And if we were to be judged on what our worst day looked like, it might not look that bad, but it would still not be a, a good way for people to judge us. And if we can, as foster parents, and this is a challenge, so don't get me wrong, I'm not holding ourselves up as saints here who do this perfect. But if, as foster parents, we can look at every situation as how can I help this bio parent get to the place where their life is together enough to where they can raise their children? That is the best possible solution. Mm-hmm. Even when I go back to Arissa, you know, Amanda's sister who, who we raised as our own daughter. You know, she loved us. We loved her. She was part of our family. She called our son's brothers. They called her sister. But I still remember her sitting on the front porch with me. And she curled up in my lap one day. She's probably five or six. And, you know, those blonde hair across her face and the big tears down her cheek and said, why doesn't my mommy and daddy love me enough to stop doing drugs and take care of me? Mm. As much as we loved her, as much as that was a great relationship and a wonderful situation for us in a lot of ways, more than anything, the thing that was best for her would have been to have two biological parents 
who would set aside their silliness, set aside the drugs, and give their biological daughter what she needed. And we have to look at every placement that way. That's the best possible solution. Now, some people cannot get over that. Some people can't put down the, the pipe. Mm-hmm. You know, and for those people, we, you know, for those kids, we, we end up looking for a secondary situation. That's why we've got four adopted kids in our house. Yeah. Because it was, sure. you know, different parents who just couldn't get through that. But that is our primary goal. But, I mean, and it's hard. Through creating these um, supportive relationships with the biological parents, the kids that you have had that have been reunified, have you kept in touch or have they been thankful for for that or receptive to that support? So uh, a few kids we still have contact with. We see through Facebook and things like that. But for the most part, um, we usually take care of younger kids, um, toddlers, babies, so a lot of them are not going to remember us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of parents don't want to have a reminder of their mm. their worst times. That's so if, if they can get through it without ever having to say when you were an infant you were in you were in sure. care. So a lot of kids will never know us and and that's fine. You know yeah. that that is that is wonderful, you know, for them to not know that this was ever an issue in their life. But we do have some children that we're able to check up on and see, um, and they're doing well, have been, we've got a couple of brothers that we're able to keep an eye on and they've been adopted out and a sister group that have been adopted out. Um, So it it is nice to be able to look and and see the smiling faces and, and know that they're doing well. It doesn't always work that way though. (laughs) Sure. And so those situations that you're saying, um, you've followed up with a couple that have been adopted out. Um, so how did that work? And so obviously these children ended up not being reunified. They did need to find a permanent home. So was it like at the time that Department of Children and Families realized they were going to be up for adoption, they were moved to a family that was going to be a permanent placement? Or how did those work? A couple of them are like that. Um, yeah, so this, the sister, we'll just take the sister group that I was referring to. Um, I'm not going to say names or anything like that, but sure. these two little girls, they came to us and they were an adoptive placement. When they came to our home, they were up for adoption. Okay. Um, and we were looking at adopting these two little girls. They just didn't fit as well into our family and they needed more more help and guidance than what we could give at the moment with uh, with all the other kids that we had in the house. And so and at that some... point, they started looking for another adoptive placement. And we kept those two little girls until they found their forever home. Yeah, I was... love that you're talking about this because I feel like one of the biggest concerns that a lot of people have before they start fostering is like, what if this doesn't work for my family or what if this doesn't work with my bio kids or what if this doesn't work with the kids I've already adopted and I can't possibly, you know, find a new path for this kid. And I, I'm always like, you know what you can, you can set boundaries. You can figure out what's best for your family, what's best for that kid. Department of Children and Families will work with you to do that. Um, but I feel like that's one of the biggest concerns when it comes to, um, Kids that might not do so well with the dynamic in your family. So Absolutely. I'm glad that you're Yeah, because that particular group, the older daughter of the two, I mean, don't get me wrong, they're both great kids. But cute as buttons. And- yeah, her specific personal needs, you know, because every kid in foster care 
probably qualifies as a kid with special needs, right? Because they've been through but, some sort of trauma. But you know, she needed a home that didn't have any other children in it. Yeah, she needs she besides, needed more besides personal attention for sure. But the, I mean, that's the thing you you do need to set boundaries. You have to have boundaries for yourself. You have to have boundaries for your family, and you have to be able to set everything aside and do what is best for that child. You know, and for this particular set, our home was not what was best for them. But we were until they were ready to go on to their forever home. And that's been, shoot, four or five years. Well, no, it's been close to six years now. And these two little girls are thriving. They're doing wonderful. Um, I talk through Facebook with their with their parents. Um, and they're doing great. You know, and they would not have thrived in our home that way. And we had another couple kids that was two, uh, two boys. In our area and um, or in our in our county that we fostered for a while, and, and the one kid he was never diagnosed, but I I will diagnose him with ODD. Just know that my psychological degrees are all invalid; <laughs> they're imaginary. So you know, yeah. but he was that he was that type of kid, right? And and I didn't do well with with that sort of oppositional defiance, you know. That at that time I just I wasn't good with it, and so they went to a placement that was supposed to be their forever placement. Something happened that disrupted. They called us to see if you know if we were interested in taking them back into our home, and we went, ah, man, that was a rough time. That wasn't really good for them. It wasn't really good for us. I said, yeah, tell you what, call around, see if you can find another home, another placement, and if not, call us back. And then I, I spoke with a man who said, hey, you know what, this family over here, they had three daughters, but they were looking to adopt two little boys. So we were like, hey, by the way, call these folks. Yeah. You know, they're foster parents in our group. Turns out today. They're adopted into that family, and they're doing great and wonderful and amazing. And just being willing to say no when it wasn't healthy for them or for us to say yes, it didn't feel awesome at the moment. It never feels good to say no when somebody's asking you to help a kid. But I know that what we did at that point was we gave those kids an opportunity to find the right place for them. But by saying no, we were helping It just wasn't easy to see it that way. And you have to know that that's always a possibility. It's always a capability. We have the ability to tell our county, no, we're not interested in taking any 12-year-old females who happen to be of this race, this, you know, we, we can put restrictions on that if we want or not. And for us, you know, we, we really, we've always kind of tried to stay younger than our youngest. That seems to be the most important thing we can do. That helps kind of study our birth order and our kids do well with that. Okay. You know, other than that, we don't have many restrictions, but that's just how we've done it. And it depends on your family dynamic as to what's best for you. And that allows you a lot of room, you know, because we had, you know, we were always, you know, we were a little bit concerned about racism from some of the family members that we had, because we didn't know how that was going to go over. That was something that we talked about a lot. And we ended up deciding, Hey, you know what? We'll take whoever comes to us and we'll go talk to those family members and say, Hey, here's what we're doing. If you don't like it, we won't bring this around you, but you know, this is what we're doing. And because that was just a, a point of who we were, we, that's who we wanted to be. And if we need to draw some boundaries around other me- family members as well. And that's, that's the thing that so many people don't realize that options there. There are not that many barriers to entry. You have to have a home that is relatively safe. It's not a fire trap and you're not like cooking meth in the bathtub. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, everybody's worried about the home inspection. All they, there's all these different ideas as to why I could never do this. Mm-hmm. The truth of the matter is each and every one of us probably could. 
if it's what what you need feel like you need to do. If it's something that that has some meaning, if you hold value in that place. And I think that's for us that that was a real key is that that's what we felt like was important. Yeah, so talk you just brought it up talk a little bit about the family, the extended family dynamic. So um, people that are in your family um, dealing with your decision to foster and adopt, um, how they react to your kids. I know I hear horror stories sometimes of like, you know, Thanksgiving where the foster kid or the adopted kid's there and everybody's, you know, oh, he can have this. Why are you so mean to him? He can have all this food and he can have all this stuff. And it's like, well, he has food issues and they have to like, you know, constantly um, defend themselves and defend their parenting and teach people about trauma and all this stuff. So um, can you speak to your experience? Do you want to talk about your family? We can go wherever we need to go. (laughs) (laughs) We have some interesting family dynamics for sure from our family of origin issues both. You know, um, we don't spend a whole lot of time around most of Amanda's family. There's a lot of addiction issues over there. That's just not healthy to be around for us, let alone a foster kid. It's not kid. safe, and so we draw some pretty hard boundaries for our kids um, sure. in order to protect them. But when mm-hmm. we first started fostering, there were a few family members on my side and Jason's side that we went and we sat down and we talked and said, hey, you know, this is what we're doing. We worried more so about racism, um, from a lot of the older generations. Well, yeah, because you know, Amanda's grandma... Um, she would she would tell you that she did not see or meet her first black person until she was 21 years old. Um, where she grew up, it just... That was, wasn't where she came from. Um, and so we were really worried about how she would treat the children that we were going to have. And to treat anybody poorly was just not an option for us sure. so we went and we sat down and we talked to her and said hey you know if, if this is going to be an issue for you we will stay away we will stay away you know and you won't be welcome in our home and it, it's a hard line to draw with your family because that that's your family yeah. this is my grandmother and and i don't associate with a whole lot of my family so to essentially take one more person away it's not something you look on lightly. The great irony, though, was we had Carl with us. Carl wasn't his real name. That's just what we called him. Yeah. Carl was with us. He was the blackest little baby you've ever met. Super dark-skinned black kid, right? No question whether he's mixed or whatever. He was just the happiest black baby you've night. ever met as well. And so when Amanda, as pale as she is, is in the grocery store one day with her grandma, and so Amanda's carrying around a super dark-skinned little baby, so we, you know... This guy's walking through the store like giving the stink eye. And then grandma, who we thought was going to have, we were going to have to deal with some racist issues of our own. She had fallen in love with this little guy. And this guy keeps giving them the stink eye to the point where grandma finally, and she was at the age she can get away with it. She finally just kind of loses her stuff and um, made the guy embarrassed enough to where he just left his cart and left the grocery store. Yeah, she cussed him out in the store and I'm trying to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to usher kids, I'm like, come on, guys, let's go, let's go. Um, so a lot of places where we thought it was going to be an issue, fortunately for us, it wasn't. But and I it think sounds it, like it kind of brought you closer. In, it did, in and, some and it really it, it opened her eyes in a lot of ways, and so it was really good for her too. But I think just taking the time to go 
and talk to her about it in the beginning and say, hey, this is what we're doing and drawing those boundaries and saying this is what's acceptable and this is what's not so that she knew without a doubt what was going to be accepted and what wasn't. And so it ended up ended up not being an issue. I mean, yeah, like Jason said, I mean, she fell in love with this little boy and, you know, it, it really opened her heart and her mind. So it, it's it's been a wonderful experience all the way around. Um, it's a really, really, really great. Um, it's great advice to say, you know, be intentional. Try to understand what obstacles you're going to have. Be, um, you know, honest about the things you have going on in your family. Like if racism is an issue, talk about that. And um, the the going ahead of time and having those conversations makes it um, a priority or, or shows that you're really serious about this rather than putting the kids and yourself in a situation that it's really not fair to your family to say, oh, it's Thanksgiving. And by the way, we've got three foster kids in the car with us. And I'm, I'm going to expect you to know how to deal with that. Right. So we are. those conversations, yeah, exactly. Those conversations and, and, and treating it like, like a, you know, a big deal that something that you're asking for their support from is huge. And then they can kind of build some ownership around that. Like your grandma did. And it's like, this is her little grandbaby. Right. And she's going to defend him. I love that. Well, and the thing is, is kids don't come into care for no reason. You mm -hmm. know, every kid has a reason as to why they're in care. And it all stems around some form of trauma. And we're not here to create more trauma. Mm -hmm. And you want to do whatever you can to make sure you're not creating more trauma. And so by by going and having those hard conversations beforehand... You take that out of it. You know, you don't have to worry about that part of it. Well, I think part of the challenge, too, is that the parenting that we grew up with, you know, don't do this, I'm going to whoop you, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know about you, but I was raised by some old school parents. I met the switch, you know, I probably deserved it. But mm -hmm. it, it, that was an effective method for a kid like me in the place I grew up in, I guess you would say. Um but that's not an effective way to, to raise kids who've been through heavy trauma. Yeah. And most people don't realize, they don't think through that. They, they don't understand the, you know, are you familiar with Karen Purvis and the TBRI, trust-based yeah. relational interventions? If you don't know about it, you know, go look it up, people. It's it's like magic. Um, you know, but if you most people don't know about that. And they don't understand what size of traumas can, can trigger some of those problems. So when you have a kid, like you said, who looks like a normal kid, they don't have scars. You don't see cigarette burns all over their body. They haven't been cut up. They haven't been, you know, there's nothing obviously wrong. You can't see the scars because they're inside. Mm. Because this kid has been starved half to death by his mom. Because he only got one glass of water every day. And that was on a good day, if he behaved. And since she really had a lot of grudges against him, usually he wasn't considered to behave. That wasn't a normal day for him. And so when you have a kid who has some of those food issues, and you walk into, you know, grandma's house on thanksgiving and there's food everywhere i mean somebody's going to be surprised that there's half a pumpkin pie shoved inside of a bag in the back of the car that's being smuggled home right mm -hmm. and they're going to think the kid's doing something wrong but the truth is is food hoarding is a big deal mm -hmm. especially when you've been starved yeah. you know because we knew a kid who'd been through exactly that story i was talking about right 
That's exactly what he did, and it took some work to get him to the point where he was okay with that. And everybody who shows up at Grandma's house is not going to understand that. Mm. So being able to take the time to have some conversations maybe with some key people in that family to say, hey, here's what we're doing. You know, do me a favor. Don't have your kids walk over and hand, you know, two slices of chocolate pie to this little boy because he's going to try and stick one of them in his pocket. It's not going to work, but he's going to try. Right. Even if he even if he tries to get them all to go get a piece for him, tell them not to. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, but but those are the issues that you have to deal with. And, and if you can have a family that's supportive enough to work through that with you, man, that's powerful. So that this whole group can kind of come around this kid and kind of help them work through these issues together. Instead of looking at you and saying that, you know, you're a bad parent because you won't let them have this. And we've experienced some of that in our, you know, in our own experience. And people, they, they look at you, they make judgments and whatever, judge me if you want. I'm a big brown guy with a big black beard and I really don't care a whole lot what you think about me, right? I've learned that to put that thick skin on because your opinion doesn't matter. What matters is whether or not I do the right thing for this kid. And as long as I can keep that mentality in my mind, it's really easy for me to continue doing it. But a lot of people don't have that thick skin. They haven't had the time to build that. Mm-hmm. And you have to be willing to, to come into this situation and educate people and keep people around you who will help you provide a supportive environment for a kid to begin to heal. Yeah, and you're talking about, like, at the end of the day, it's not about you. Like, so you have to have a thick kid or thick skin so that you can protect the kid because it's not about you and in in trauma um informed techniques they always talk about you know to not take it personally and not be offended certainly don't react in a way that is joining their chaos i hate Um, you i hate this house i don't even want to be here you're horrible you're mean Uh, like three times this week and it's monday (laughs) (laughs) like i get it but you know what when you learn not to take it personally and you don't react in a personal way, 20 minutes later, we're good. Right. You know, that whatever it was that came out, it's it's okay. It's it's fine. You know, but mm-hmm. it's when you realize that it's a trauma coming out. When you look at this kid and realize that even a 10, 12, 14, 16-year-old kid is still having pieces of that trauma come out and recognizing when the reaction you're getting is trauma. Mm-hmm. It's the after effects of trauma that you're dealing with so that I don't take it personally. You're not being, you're not, you're not trying to, to get me to, and maybe you are trying to get me to react, but I'm not going to because I know that what I see is trauma. So I'm going to be calm. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to work through that. I might go in the other room later and want to put a hole in the wall because you did actually get to me a bit, but I'm not going to respond that way because it's not going to be healthy and it's not going to ultimately serve us creating a connection in a way that will work toward your long-term success. Well, I, and I love that you said, and I might want to go put a hole in the wall or shoot, you might actually. And I like that you say that because the, I feel like a lot of people might listen to trauma informed principles and go like, okay, well, like, sorry, but I did take it personally. Like he called me a fat pig and then, you know, spit at me and, um, (laughs) I've given everything to this kid and all of that. And it's like, it's also okay that you felt that way oh, and yeah. you do need an outlet for you to go take care of yourself, but it just can't be in reaction to the kid. Well, yeah. and it's, I mean, we're all human. We all have feelings. Well, the important thing is we all have an amygdala. And when that yeah. kid manages to spike that part of your brain that reacts with fight or flight, you just have to be the grown up in the room. Mm. It's your job to take a breath. Mm. 
It's your job not to respond the same way they're responding. Otherwise, you end up looking like a three and a four year old having a you know having a competition to see who can win the argument. Spoiler alert, they, neither one of them ever wins. Yeah, you'll never win. <laughs> exactly, you know, but your job is to realize that, yeah, I have an amygdala and it's going to get, it's going to hit, hit pretty hard sometimes. These kids know how to, how to find the bite buttons. Every kid does. We did when we were kids. Sure. But you have to train yourself to know, hey, I'm not going to react in an angry way. As a matter of fact, I, and this has taken some years of practice and a lot of kids, when I react, well, no. When I respond, because there's a difference. A reaction is what my amygdala wants. The response is what I choose. So when I respond, my kids have learned the most dangerous thing they can hear is dad gets soft, his voice gets a little bit lower, and I start to sound incredibly calm. Because what that means is I'm controlling something inside of me. Like, this is the controlled place. And I'm going to continue, to, and I'm not going to be ignorant. I'm not, I refuse to be loud. I will refuse to have this argument and have something that's going to damage this relationship. But when we're done, I'm probably going to need five minutes. You just give me five and leave me be. Because <laughs> I have to blow a little bit of steam off. But that, but we all have that. It's, it's sure. a natural reaction that you learn to control and respond differently than you want to. I love it. So tell me, what was your first entry into um, TBRI or... Just any trauma-informed techniques, or we really need to be therapeutic foster parents or adoptive parents? Um, well, our very first placements. Okay. You know, um, Janiah and Deshaun, they they witnessed quite a bit of trauma. Um, we, we knew from the get-go that we were going to have to learn to do something different. That okay. this was not like parenting that we had ever done before. But to be fair and honest, at that point in time, let's see, we're going back 10, a little over 10 years ago. Yeah, it didn't exist really. Yeah, we didn't have that. No. We didn't have that information. We just, we were kind of winging it. We were. Um, we found a good therapist and did some play therapy, you know, and you just, it's been a learning curve ever since. You but know, the, you, you soak up the information as you can find it. The TBRI, um, we've, we've kind of recently stumbled into and been learning yeah. some of that. Um, there was actually a post on Facebook a while back. I don't know if you saw it. A lot of people in the foster community saw it. It was a story about, um, about a a little boy and some ramen noodles. Yeah. And they listened to your podcast with her. Okay. So yeah. And and she talked a lot about that with us. And and actually she, she gave us some, some resources that since I drive for a living, anything that's on video or audio, I can just turn it on and throw it in a seat and listen and and learn that way and i have learned so much learning karen purvis is who she talks about a lot who i think is kind of like the the godmother of tbri yeah absolutely and just so much information there they go okay well i can see where i was doing some of this like we we stumbled across some of the right things and some of it we maybe were a little bit off and we're, we're in that process of learning how to do it better and better every day of course but it is such a valuable thing to understand that you're not you're not raising kids you're not you don't have kids in your house who've had a perfect warden and uh, what's her name? Warden June Cleaver type background, right? They, they didn't have a perfect childhood. Not that any of us did, but they had some right. really specific, very acute traumas to deal with. And so we have to just like throw, throw whatever we can at it and see what sticks, you know, hope for the best. And so now we've, we're in this age of technology that's so different from anything our parents or anybody else has ever experienced. If I want to know about kids who've been through trauma, I go to Google, right? I go to YouTube. I go to, it's all out there. And all this information is available to all of us if we're willing to go look at it and just 
just to educate ourselves a little bit. And that's been a real powerful thing to us, though. But I'd say learning, um, I've learned a lot by listening to Karen Purvis and some of those resources. That's great. Um, for those who haven't seen the viral ramen post, um, you guys can go on um, Jason and Amanda's podcast. Um, and see the interview with the mom, who is also a social worker as well, right? She, yes. I don't, she's a. I don't remember. If she still is. I know yes, she. She, she, is. she was. Okay. Yeah. So she has that background anyway, and she's fostered kids, and it's um, foster care and unparalleled journey is Jason and Amanda's podcast, and you can go on there, and I think that it's titled Trauma and Ramen. That's the one. Yeah. Or, or something like that. So uh, you guys can find it easily, um, but it's a great story of. Um, of that mom's experience with her little boy's trauma around uncooked ramen. So, um, that's a, that's a good one. Um, okay. So I know that Amanda, I've listened to some of your backstory and obviously we all have trauma that we have to work through right. how much, like, this is what's interesting to me. Cause I feel like it's not has nothing to do with really being a foster parent because I feel like all of us to be better people have to like address our own trauma. And the more we can go back and kind of address our own stuff, the more we can show up in our lives for other people. But I feel like being a foster parent, it's like the demand for you to heal your own stuff is put on hyperdrive because I feel like it can, it can do that. Um, it can kind of show you your own stuff. So what does the process look like for being a therapeutic um, trauma-informed parent at the same time as like what healing has happened for you through this process for both of you? <laughs> well, I mean, there, there's a lot. I mean, that, that's a, a big question, <clears throat> mm-hmm. but I will say you do have to take care of yourself. You have to take care of your past. Um, you know, finding what works for you, whether it be, writing, meditation, a good counselor, a good doctor, you know, mental health is a, is a big thing. And so, you know, we have a guy that we go and talk to monthly. Dr. Tom is awesome. Like clockwork. You know, we have to have our avenues too. Mm -hmm. You know, I have to have a place to get it out. You know, there's some of these stories that we come in contact with that I'm like, wow, that was, that was me. You know, and you have to be able to separate yourself from that because you don't do any good for a child at that point. Actually, if you if you happen to catch it because I accidentally re or mislabeled the date that I wanted to release a podcast the other day, and so it was out and available for like three minutes. I know a bunch of podcast <laughs> uh, podcatchers caught it, um, but if you see one out there, um, it's uh, Zoe. It was the name of the girl that we interviewed, and Zoe kind of she tells a big part of Amanda's story. Yeah, me and Zoe are a Is that the sixteen-year-old? Yep. I I already listened to it. <laughs> <laughs> that one's not supposed to come out for for a few more weeks. <laughs> that one was, it was a news. It was like six weeks out, and maybe somebody might have hit the wrong schedule button when he but posted I, it. I would say that it's it's been good for me because it's made me go back and have to address some things that I was maybe avoiding that I just uh, you know put away and was like, eh, I don't have to deal with this. You know, it just will throw this back there and I'm not going to deal with that. Um, so it's it's been really good for me because it's helped me take care of myself better. And I got to be the best that I can be so mm-hmm. that I can do what's best for, for the kiddos. So I think another thing that's really done for Amanda is to be able to see her, see these kids go through something. 
be able to empathize with these kids, and in the long term, be able to see her own past journey through that lens. Mm. And that that's given her a lot of, I think... It's given me a voice. Yeah. When I didn't always have a voice. Um, it, it's easier for me to stand up for others, and I'm good at that. It's hard for me to stand up for myself sometimes. And so this whole process has, has really opened my eyes and, and given me a voice where I didn't feel like I had one. Yeah, and giving being their voice is being your voice, yeah. and helping them heal is your healing. Exactly. Yeah, I I love that. And and when you said like oh things that we put away, like I through my own journey of um, trying to work on you know past stuff, it's like there is no oh I'm healed. You know, it's like you're just always working on stuff, which is like the good news and like also like, Oh, do I always have to work on stuff? But you're always working on stuff. And I feel like, you know, you only get to work on a little, as much as you can take and like your, your body, your mind can only take so much of that vulnerability. And like our defense mechanisms are there to protect us. So through these kids and through different situations in our life, we get opportunities to kind of buy opt in again, to work on ourselves and to, to address those things that we have put away. Um, but I was wondering if you were going to say that, you know, this has been a really healing journey for you. Um, just because you're advocating and caring for people that are giving them the care that you didn't get, you know? Yeah. Um, I love that. Yeah. It also helps that I have a really supportive husband. He's, he's pretty good. He puts <laughs> up with my craziness on a daily. <laughs> <laughs> I may have brought a little with me. Yeah, you did. I, I have heard so many people say um, supportive spouse is like, you know, chops the charts as far as um, being able to just, you know, deal with life. And as far as um, foster and foster care and adoption go, what has it been like for your marriage? Um, like, has it brought new complexity? I'm sure it's brought new complexity to your marriage. But um, as far as like, how do you guys stay like a united front and on the same page? Well, you know, Amanda <laughs> and I both came from from broken homes. My my parents divorced after I left the home, but they probably would have been well served to have done that years before. They yeah. they had a lot of bad years prior to the actually divorcing. And Amanda, you know, she had her own her own problems with, you know, an absentee father and, you know, men in and out of the house and different people. And so we, we really had modeled for us a lot of the things that will cause divorce and separation and animosity and, and all those things. And the, one of the things that I think we both came to the relationship with was, hey, you know what? This wasn't awesome. I, what I went through wasn't awesome. What she went through wasn't awesome. And when I say forever here, I mean forever. And we're going to make this work. And we approached it from that angle. And, and I understand some people can't make it work. And, you know, that's that's some, somebody else's deal to work with. But for us, we started with the end in being a gravestone, right? Like, we're not planning on ending any other way. There's no, you know, eject button. There's no easy out here. And we're going to work hard at this. And because we saw all these different problems. Now, my parents had their set of issues. Amanda's family had their set of issues. And they were different. But that allowed us to both kind of see the weaknesses in where we came from and some of the strengths and be able to intentionally build it together. And I think we came together 
20 years ago with that as a basis, as a foundation for our relationship, is that I'm not, I'm not here going to say that I'm perfect and it's going to be easy or she's perfect and it's going to be easy. Neither one of us are perfect and it's not going to be easy, but we're going to do it. And that's where we came at it from. So as far as when we started fostering, by that point, we've been through quite a bit together. And the foster care has brought a lot of unique experiences to our home. And, you know, but at the same time, it's also shown us just how, how fortunate we are in a lot of ways. You know, in a lot of ways that we're able to find these kids who need a parent, who, who need a stable place. And we have worked for years to build a stable place. If not just for us and our kids, our bio kids, you know, it's, it's created this place where another kid can come in and experience that. And it allows us to share some of the struggles that we've had, some of our own personal um, situation with some kids who haven't experienced that. You know, there's a lot of kids who've never seen two grown adults, husband and wife, disagree with one another and do it in a respectful way. Right. Not hurt each other, not harm each other, whether it be with fists or words. You know, a lot of kids have never seen that being modeled. And so, you know, I would say for us, we were in a good place when we started fostering. But I would say that it is still, it's brought us closer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's made us be more intentional, mm-hmm. you know. And that's one of the things we have. We have to be intentional, like with our time, you know, because if anybody who's married knows, if you just let it wither, it'll wither and die. You know, if mm-hmm. you don't build that relationship, you know, just before this call today, you know, date day was not anything fancy today. We um, got in the car. We have a subway and a McDonald's in our town. So we went to Subway and we sat in the park and we ate our lunch and we just spent, you know, spent some time together and talk and, and discuss things with the kids, with our lives, with our work, with that. But we're still building that, you know, 20 years later. Guess what? You don't get to quit building. Mm. You know, plant a tomato plant sometimes. And you tell me, at what point does it just stop growing and sit there just like it is? It never does. It either grows or it dies relationships are the same way you water it you fertilize it and it'll grow you just let it sit there and ignore it and it will die there is no stasis and that's something you know we've had to struggle through because over the years you know sometimes we've had what six seven kids in the house yeah and it's a challenge to find time to have a date night or time together or when you're working 60 hours a week and she's working you know 40 50 hours a week and you have six kids in the house and 90% 90% of them all have a trauma background that we have to deal with. But that's also a piece of our life that is just as important as anything else these kids are going to... We, we need to deal with these kids. They also need to see stable adults in a stable relationship, modeling that for them so they know that that's a possibility. Mm-hmm. I love it. So I have to ask you about... Um, is it Turtle and Twitch? Yep. Yep. I have a first, turtle and I have a twitch. First of all, I just need to know where the names come from. Well, turtle got his name because Amanda just called him turtle one day. It just kind of stuck. Well, his biological mother, she had a name for him that I didn't particularly care for. She called him fat fat or fat man. And I just didn't care for it. And it just, he looked like a turtle and it just stuck, and that's just who he is now. Twitch um, is my fault, though, for sure. Twitch is definitely your fault. 
Um, when um when our our oldest daughter Arissa when she eventually she she got sick a few years ago, and um she spent nine months at Children's Hospital fighting a nasty disease called hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, which is a mouthful. That's why they usually just call it HLH. Um, and she fought for nine months before she lost her fight. And during that process, uh, we, we took in Twitch as an infant. He was, um, he was meth addicted when he was born. He spent his first two weeks on, of life on a methadone wean down. And we got him just a couple of days shortly after that. Well, if you've ever experienced any kind of drug addicted baby, they have lots of different symptoms. One of them, they cry a lot. And they also have some other ticks and stuff sometimes is that as those drugs leave the system, because I mean, he was on a methadone wean down. The hospital was giving him meth. Yeah, without yeah. it, he was having uncontrollable seizures. Yeah, they so he had to have, like, dosed methamphetamine to, to bring him back down, which is crazy to think of, but, I mean, it, it actually helps. So during that time frame, that was when Arissa was in the hospital. Amanda was spending most nights at the hospital. I still had a job. I still had to make, I was the sole income of the family at the time, so I was home with the kids, and Twitch was with us, and this little kid would lay there and sleep until he would suddenly twitch, something to do with the you know the 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 meth in his brain. He would have a full body twitch and jump and wake himself up, scare himself half to death, and scream. But one thing drug addicted babies can be really good at is screaming. Fortunately for me, one thing I'm really good at is ignoring screaming. And so we went through this for a while until I figured out that if if I would take those little um they call them little papoose wraps or you, it's got like a the pocket swaddlers. swaddlers yeah you, you can tuck the feet down and, and then wrap the blanket around them and and velcro the new ones have velcro and they're awesome yeah yeah but i would put it so tight around him that i felt like i had to be nervous and watch and make sure he could breathe okay with it super tight so that when he would twitch when he would jump like that his twitch wouldn't wake him up and he could sleep to the, it was the only way he could sleep through the night and through that process though as many times as he would do that to me and scare me half to death I just started calling him Twitch. And so to this day, <laughs> the poor little guy's name is Twitch because of, you know, the, the meth that, that he had in his system when he was born. Through no fault of his own, you know, his, his mom was, was an, an addict. And, and so unfortunately, he had to deal with that. But today, actually today, he's four years old. I watch TV like once a month, maybe. At least intentionally. We'll sit down and, on the couch and watch TV. And he'll come over and climb up in my lap. And I think he does it just because he thinks it's funny. But he'll climb up in my lap, and I will sit there and watch TV, and I'll doze off pretty quick. And he'll he'll doze off on my chest, and no more than I get comfortable and start to doze off of when a four year old does a full body twitch, that will scare you. And he he just climbed, and all of a sudden he'll jump into sleep and scare me half to death. I think he's going to the floor, and, and we both yeah, jump. I and mean, he he still twitches, but, but it's not like he used really to. Really rare now. You don't see it nearly as often, and we've seen. Like the drug addiction be such a bad thing at the beginning, and as time has gone on, I mean, yeah, I'm certain we're going to have some some side effects of it as he gets older. There's that's just a fact, you know. There's it's a chemical fact, but he's done really well for a kid who came from where he came from. Yeah, and I mean, as far as name names go, that's kind of a thing in our house. Everything gets named. No, most. Nobody really goes by their real names. In well, our Deshaun house. does. We have one kid who somehow or another. Like, he's had a couple nicknames, and they tend just go away. He keeps going back to Deshaun. Yeah. But most of our kiddos go by a nickname, and it's just I totally get it. I, I am a 10-month-old. We call him Butters, and I'm like, is this going to be like he's going to be playing <laughs> fo- 
wall and I'm going to call him Butters. Like, is he going to be embarrassed by this name? Is he so? I and I think to, our dogs have like 10 or 12 names. Each, I have to so. ask, is Butters a South Park reference? No, it isn't. <laughs> I just, I, when he was just a tiny little n- newborn, I was like, I don't know. He just looked like butter, like just, you know, like <laughs> uh, so soft and made my heart melt like butter. So I was like, Aww. hold him. But yeah. That's a way you better know, story than South Park. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm sure that people are going to be like, you are butters from South Park. <laughs> well, we I, actually, growing up, I did have a kid who lived next door to us, and that was his, his nickname was Butter. That's what we called him. I still don't know why. <laughs> that was what we called him. He was Butter. Maybe it was the mom's fault. Well, <laughs> we'll see if he, we'll see if he, um, I remember I had a, a nickname growing up, Buggy. And like, it was such a nickname that like, they called me to the principal's office by my, by, you know, buggy come down to the office. So it wasn't until college that I chose to switch it, but my brothers would yell at my mom, like, do not call me that in public. And certainly do not yell it from the sidelines at my baseball game. So <laughs> the boys seem to not take so much ownership over their uh, nicknames as they got older. <laughs> yeah, but I think one thing that I've noticed about those nicknames, though, is it, it adds a level of connection to the family. Mm. You know, I don't call my boss at work by a nickname. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just don't. I, I have some nicknames for a few people I work with, but they're not they're not kind nicknames necessarily, you know, but if I have a nickname for somebody, it's usually, it's, it's a, a term, ten, term of, of there you go. That's, I was looking for that phrase. That's yeah, what it is. It's you know, just, it's another way of integration and we all want to feel like we're a part of something, mm-hmm. you know, and when these kiddos come in, they just want to be a part. They want to be a part of something, something greater than them. They want to know that they matter. Mm-hmm. And they want to know that someone cares for them and loves them and is going to be there and support them. And anything that we can do to help achieve that, you know, silly nickname, you know, whatever it, whatever it works for that child, you know, that that's what we have to do. That's what we have to find. Um, And we found that nicknames really, really do help do that. They help accomplish that a lot. Yeah, because if I can call anybody else in the world Nani, and they're not going to have a clue what that means. Like, what, what, huh? But I have a little girl who goes by Nani, right? Like, that's her name. If I say that in public, she's the only person in the room who knows who I'm talking about, usually. Except for maybe some of her closer friends who've been to our house. Sure. You know, these kids, that, but that's a part of their history that they will look back on and be like, yeah, that's what my dad used to call me. Mm. That's That's that. setting those anchors in their life back to that place in their heart that's called home. And that may not be a biological home, but having that place in their heart that's always going to be home. That's something that some, so many kids don't get. You know, the kids who age out of the system. You know, a kid comes into foster care at 12, 14 years old and ages out and never ends up with a family to call their own with a mom and a dad who they can call and say, hey, I need some help. You know, they, they, they never have that. They, they spend the rest of their life without that place called home. And a lot of those kids don't end up succeeding you know, when you look at the stats, the 85% of all statistics are made up on the spot. So I'm going to try and remember what it was. But it was something like, it's somewhere in the 80% range of, of, of people in jail today were at some point in foster care. Mm. When you look at that number, you go, wait, what? You know, 
if that is such a huge piece of, of our prison population, could we not take our lives and give it to a young child and perhaps prevent their, their entry into the criminal justice system later? What if I can help empty the jails tomorrow by working with kids today? You know, that's, that's the power of this, I think. Yeah, and absolutely. But um, when in March, when Dan Heath's book comes out, I recommend it to you. It's called Upstream. And Dan Heath is a, um, a professor at Duke University. He's, he's um, written a few um, New York Times bestseller books. They're all about like social, why we do what we do and, you know, um, society issues. But this one that's called Upstream that's coming out, he sent me a, a pre-copy that I read, but it's all about just like fixing problems before they happen. And you can go, you can keep going upstream. But one of the things with stable moments is trying to get into the lives or with foster care, it's like trying to get into the lives of kids so that they can become healthy adults and they can make um, healthy transitions into adulthood and not become pregnant early and not become incarcerated or homeless and all of that. So um and you'll start seeing my, you know my thing is you'll start seeing some of those other numbers go down like um dependence on state subsidies and incarceration rates and stuff if we can just get to the individual child and make them like amanda said believe that they matter Absolutely. Um, because are you going to do anything if you don't think you matter like no nothing productive yeah well you know the name of that book rem reminded me of a story i heard the other day I love this one. You know, there was, you know, some people standing by a riverbank and a, a kid comes floating down in the river crying for help and everybody, you know, somebody runs out and grabs a kid and a little while later, another, you know, kid comes and somebody else runs over and grabs this kid and tries and rescues him. And this goes on for a little while until somebody finally leaves the group and disappears. Like, where's he going? We're saving these kids. And, and, you know, he was going upstream to see why all these kids were falling in the river. You know, let's and he starts his book out with that parable. Really? Okay. I, I think it's yeah. I think it's a, an old um, parable that I had never heard either. But he starts it out with that, and I'm like, oh my gosh! And it, and he talks about how the United States spends a lot of their money on making um, hiring people to drag kids out of the river mm. rather than They're spending two thirds of you know flip flopping the priorities of the budget so that you can spend more money on people actually figuring out. Absolutely. Because, you know, I'm not certain what, what, it, what the Florida numbers are. I know Missouri is either the lowest or second lowest paid state in the nation when it comes to foster care. Mm. When you look at the amount of money available for resources, when you look at what the, the, the social workers are making to be uh, to work for children's division out here. I looked at it because I think with my personality type, I, I would probably make a pretty decent investigator. I have that that mentality. I have that personality. I grew up in a family of cops. I would do well in that job. And I looked at it. First off, I have to go to college. Second off, after I go through the college course, I have to go take about a 80% pay cut to work for the state in that way. Because they're making 20, upper 20s, maybe $30,000 yeah, a year. to 30. And I'm like, that's, that's where the state places their priority. Because you, you can tell priorities by, the, by looking at somebody's checkbook, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's where they place their priorities. Now... Go look at how much the, the people who are running a prison make, right? And you can quickly see they spend way more money in rehabbing these these adults than they do in, in uh, taking care of kids. And what's the, the Frederick Douglass quote? I just saw this. You just posted this on the page. Um, something about it's easier to build strong 
strong oh, yeah. men than to um, strong easier easy to build strong business. children th- than to yeah. repair broken men. That's what it yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the truth of it. It's we, the truth. That's what we're doing. That and that's why we're doing what we're doing. Because the difference is, I, I knew a couple guys when I was younger. My dad kind of mentored them, and today they're both you know amazing human beings. They both have kids. They're both very productive members of society. Actually, one of them, if you Google his first and last name, you get a picture of him. He's like he's like a guy who who's known worldwide in his industry, but that's not who he was at at fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years old. You know, he was he was on the whole other end of the law. And because one person took an interest in him, because one person mentored him a little bit, gave him a little bit of what he needed, today he's a different human. And his wife is different for, you know, dealing with him. His children will be different and their children will be different. It was a generational change. And that's the power of this is when you build strong, strong kids, you don't have to repair the broken man. Mm, I love it. So tell me about your podcast, the mission of your podcast, what you're really like hoping to do, and then tell people the best ways that they can find you. Okay, our podcast is Foster Care, An Unparalleled Journey, and we started it more or less, well, when, when Arissa got sick and passed away, we went through a tough time. We actually took some time off of, uh, off of fostering because, well, we just weren't in a place to take care of that. And I really felt like we were kind of stepping away from what something that had a lot of meaning in our life. We were kind of swimming in, in a sea of lost for a while. And so I decided I was going to find something to do. And I ended up creating a blog site. And you can find that at jasonmpalmer.com. And the, the podcast is up there as well. But that was kind of where I started. And I was just encouraged by a few people in, in a dad's group I'm in that said, Hey, man, you need to write. You need to talk. You need to do something. You know, you have a lot of experiences. Go go share these with people. And the podcast just seemed to be the easiest way to do it. And so I sat down and, and recorded my first podcast, which I think since has been um, burned somewhere because it was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody thinks their first one is horrible. But my first one was just me sitting down trying to figure out what in the heck I'm doing. I had no clue. And then I started recording a couple other ones. And Amanda was coming in into the office one day. I said, hey, you want to sit down and do this with me? And I figured out real quick that we're better together. <laughs> Neither one of us are horrible humans, but we're better together. And so we, we started just telling stories. And that seems to resonate with people. You know, if you listen to the legacy of Turtle, which is kind of a long one, that's why it was broken up in so many pieces. He has a deep, long, dark, rich story that that is just like everything you've heard bad in life that you can go through. He probably went through almost all of it. And to be able to tell that story to people and then show who he is today and see that he came from this dark place, you know, or to be able to sit down, we interviewed a lady named Amy and hope for Amy is all about a woman who got pulled into a methamphetamine addiction. And after the meth addiction, it was the money addiction that came from selling the meth. Mm -hmm. And she was a full blown dealer. And then she finally got, you know, her kids got taken away and she got, she got pulled out to the place where, you know, she had to get clean. She had to change her life. And, you know, today she's got, I think, three years sober. Yeah. I think that's what I saw her post recently. Three years clean. She has her children back. Yeah. And and so to to give these stories to people to know that, man, I know it looks dark. Whether you're a kid who's going through tough stuff, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Whether you're the bio parent who's going through the tough stuff, there is a light at the end of that tunnel. 
and bring as much of the community together that we, as we can to be able to create a future that's brighter than what it is today. You know, our, our official mission statement is, what is it? To provide strength for the weakest among us. And I think that's really what, what we're trying to do. You know, and if that ever turns into something that, that, that is a, a big podcast that makes all kinds of money and I get rich and can afford to buy a Rolls Royce, awesome. If not, <laughs> we'll still keep doing it. Because it's, it's that, that place where we can reach other people. Where we can connect with other human beings and say, hey, there's something you can do that's meaningful in this life. When somebody sits down, because they will, somebody will someday sit down and write your obituary. Mm-hmm. Give them something to say. Mm. That's what you're going to do today. You're going to write your obituary today. So what are they going to say? You know, let's let's get about writing that. And that's kind of where we came from, which sounds like kind of a grandiose vision. But I mean, it's it's just accepting that today is just one step closer to the end of our lives and trying to find some meaning in all of it and, and make connections for people and, and help others out. Well, and it's huge, especially for the foster care and adoption community. I mean, it's isolating. It's hard to yeah. it's hard to find people that get what you're going through and understand your journey. And it it's just nice to know you're not alone. Yeah, it can be pretty lonely. Yeah, when you find yourself in the grocery store with that kid who's ODD, who's decided that he's going to have a meltdown right here, and you're going to deal with it. And and half the grocery store looks at you like, well, who are you? You know, and nobody understands what's going on. Mm-hmm. But to have some people around you who, who can help you help you with that, who are you can lean in on, build that community. Yeah. Well, this has been awesome. I'm so excited to give this to my listeners. I think that they're going to love your story, and I think that they're going to love your podcast even more. And I feel like, you know having this little intro and them getting to know you on here will, will help them bridge that gap and, and make them go over there um, and get that connection and support that you guys offer. So I, I really want to thank you for taking time out of your day and maybe possibly cutting your very important date day <laughs> short. <laughs> I hope your subway was awesome. Sounds delicious. <laughs> it wasn't too bad. No. It wasn't steak, but you know. <laughs> It was still food. So. That's okay. You, you made us go to Subway instead of the steakhouse, so it was way cheaper, right? It was way cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> no, we appreciate you having us on here as well. You know, it's you know we're, we're um, always about the mission of just spreading information yeah. and bringing people together. Um, so you, you know, know, and not only the podcast. You know, if anybody has a question or needs to talk, reach out to us. Get a hold of us. You got a question? If we don't know the answer, we'll find the answer. If you just need someone to talk to, someone to vent to. You know, we're here. Yeah, we're easy to find on on email. You know, it's just fostercareuj as an unparalleled journey. Fostercareuj at gmail.com. And if you want to find the podcast, we should be on all the big podcasters out there, all the podcast uh, catchers, I guess you call them. The iTunes, the Spotify, the iHeartRadio. I think we just got on Pandora the other day. Yeah. Um, Very cool. Yeah, yeah, some of those are hard to figure out. So, yeah. Yeah, and I'll put I'll put some links to your social and your website in the show notes. So yeah, if, um, and if you just go to the website, you can find all of it from there. I think um, there's links to something somewhere on there. I built the, the website, and um, I, I'm gonna give you a disclaimer. 
I'm not a website builder, so hopefully you can find what you're looking for in there. If not, just hit the the contact button and send me a question. I'm we've all got our fancy little pocket computers we carry around everywhere, and we get a get the email pretty quick. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty good at responding. Sounds great. Well, I hope you guys have a great rest of your day and keep rocking it out. Keep doing what you're doing. We're so lucky in this world to have people like you. Thanks a lot. All right. I'll talk to you guys later. All right. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Well, thanks for listening through, guys. I hope that provided some value for all of you out there. If you're interested, you can look up Staple Moments at staplemoments.com. Rebecca also has a podcast at staplemoments.com slash podcast. You can also find her on Spotify and all the other platforms. Be sure to go and check her out. Thanks to everyone for listening all the way through. If you're trying to find us on a specific podcasting platform, just search for Jason and Amanda Palmer or Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or anywhere where you find your podcast. You can also download it so that you can listen wherever you're at, even when you aren't online. You can find us online at jasonmpalmer.com where you can read our blog and listen to all of our previous podcasts. If you have a story that you'd like to tell on the show, please send me an email at jasonmpalmer at yahoo.com. And be sure to put podcasts in the subject line. Or send me a message through our Facebook page at Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey. We'll see you next time.